So we are approaching uh, the halfway point in Mark's gospel. Next week, we get to the pivot point. Okay, the question that the whole first half of this gospel, this book, has been building up to. As Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them, who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? Okay, arguably, it's the, it, it is the most important question that any of us, not just them, but you and me, that any of us have to wrestle with. Who do you think that Jesus of Nazareth is? And what Mark's been doing is he's been giving us evidence upon evidence to help us come to a decision. I mean, just think back to the passage we looked at last week. Okay, we saw a girl delivered of a demon simply by Jesus, some distance away, we don't know how far, but he wasn't with her, simply by Jesus telling her mother, it's done. The demon has left your daughter. Hey, think about that. That means that Jesus can will something from a distance. He can internally command the powers of evil, doesn't have to say a word, doesn't have to be present in the room. He can will something at a distance. He can command something internally, and it is done. Then we saw him heal a deaf man with a speech impediment by touching his ears, spitting, and touching the guy's tongue. Almost as if he is reenacting God the Father fashioning Adam out of the clay of the ground. And what Mark wants us to do is grapple with the question who is he? Who is this guy? Who is this man who can do these sorts of things? Now, listen, if you're wrestling with that question, you know, who is he? You're not alone. Because what Mark also does, as well as presenting us with, um, uh, with evidence, he also shows us other people wrestling with exactly that question. Okay, firstly, uh, well, as we saw last week, there's the uh, Gentile Syrophoenician woman whose daughter, whose daughter was delivered of the demon. And she, she's a Gentile, she's a Canaanite, she's a Syrophoenician, but she gets who Jesus is. She gets who he is. She knows who he is, and she trusts him. But what we see in today's passage is the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they are, interestingly, they are looking at exactly the same evidence, aren't they? They're looking at exactly the same data, but they are coming to a very different conclusion. And then in between these two extremes are the disciples. Same evidence, same data, but do they get it? Do they understand who he is? Has the penny dropped for them yet? Do they know who he is? Okay, but there's another question. If that's the big question that so far this book has been dealing with, there's another question that this passage deals with. And it's the answer to this question that we're going to look at today that helps us answer the key question of Jesus' identity. And that question, the question we're going to look at today, is who, who or what can satisfy you? You see, 
there is a sense in which every single one of us is searching for meaning and fulfillment in life. Okay, we're searching for purpose. All of us, to one degree or another, we are all searching for the sense that we matter, that we count, that there's a point to our existence, there's, there's a reason for our being. And we all need an answer to that question. But who or what can give you that? Who or what can give you that sense of being satisfied that you've come home, that, that this, this, you know, all this time I've been searching and now I've found it and I'm satisfied so I can stop searching because I've come home. Who or what can give you that? Well, Mark doesn't just answer that question. He also tells you what the competition looks like and why they can't satisfy you. Okay, first point then, in search of satisfaction. Now, one of our daughters uh, recently returned from the UK. She'd spent some time there. And when she got back, she said, I could never live in the UK. <laughs> and those aren't the words an Englishman particularly wants to hear, are they? Um, and so we said to her, really? Never? Was it the weather? I mean, too hot and sunny all the time? Un unrelenting sunshine? And she said, no, it's the bread. It <laughs> she said, it's terrible. It comes already sliced and in plastic bags, and it tastes of absolutely nothing. In fact, the plastic bags taste better than the bread. Okay, now just think about that. Imagine deciding your future based on the quality of bread. Okay, but it's not so stupid, is it? If you look at today's passage, okay, it's not so stupid because this passage tells you that there is a link between your future and bread. Just not the kind of bread you think of. Okay, not just the kind of bread that comes in plastic bags. If you look at this bit of mark that we are in, the theme of bread runs throughout it. This Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman whose daughter needs delivering of a demon, this woman who wants healing for her daughter, comes to Jesus and asks for that. And Jesus says, it's not right to throw the children's bread to dogs. Well, sure, says the woman, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from under the table. Jesus feeds a crowd of thousands with bread. And then the disciples get into a boat with him and they start discussing about what? Bread. And Jesus uses that to talk about leaven, the stuff that makes bread rise. Why? Why all this talk about bread? Because at one level, bread is about what you can eat. I mean, like Phil said, something, you know, you're hungry, so you eat some bread. But it's also at another level, isn't it? And that is about what fills you at a far deeper, you know, what, what can fill a far deeper hunger? When you're hungry, not just for food, but for meaning and purpose and a sense that you matter, answers, when you're hungry for answers to the great questions of life, when you need that kind of bread, 
Okay, but as you watch Jesus feed this crowd of 4,000, you'd be forgiven for a sense of deja vu, wouldn't you? I mean, is this, you know, critics say, liberal theologians will say, oh, this is just a retelling of the feeding of the 5,000. You know, Mark's forgotten that he's already told us this. You know, what Mark needs, like most authors, is a decent editor. Is that the case? No. Okay, look how it starts, verse 1. In those days, in what days? Well, look back up. In the days when, Mark tells us in chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus was in the region of the Decapolis, which is Gentile territory. So Jesus is amongst non-Jews. He's amongst Gentiles. And among all the, I mean, there are a number of similarities between the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, but there are, there are more differences and amongst those differences, probably the greatest of them is here. Because the feeding of the 5,000 was feeding 5,000 or more Jews, 5,000 or more Jewish people. Here, Jesus is faced with a crowd of thousands of Gentiles. People just like the Syrophoenician woman. People just like you and me, if you're, if you're not Jewish. It's why in verse 3, Jesus says that some of them have come from far away. Now, that's, he's not just talking about physical, geographical distance. That is the way that Jewish people would speak of Gentiles, people from far away, people from another nation. You know, just like an Englishman would refer to Americans as those strange people from across the pond. Okay? Jews would say they're people from far away. And after three days with him, these far away people, far away because they're separated from Israel geographically and ethnically, but far away because they are separated and alienated from Israel's God, they are running short of food. Okay, so what's Jesus' response to that? What's his response to their need? Verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd. That word compassion is an interesting word, isn't it? It comes from the word for your intestines, for your guts. You know, we might say, you know, in polite English, you know, Jesus' Jesus's heart was moved with compassion. What Mark actually says is that Jesus feels a gut-wrenching emotion for them. Why? Why so physical? Well, at one level, you might say, well, Jesus is just being empathetic. You know, he's a man who knows what it is to be hungry in a wilderness. You know, at the time of his temptations, when Satan tempted him to make bread from stones. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? Okay, Jesus looks at this crowd and he sees their needs. Their needs from the most basic need for food up to their need for God, their need for their alienation from God to be brought to an end, their need to be brought into the family and the people of God, their need to be brought home, their need for forgiveness, their need for meaning and purpose and to discover what life is really about. And Jesus feels that. He knows that that need needs to be filled, starting with their stomachs. If that's how Jesus responds, how do the disciples respond? Verse 4, 
How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, if you're a skeptic, you might think, oh, come on, if this really happened, okay, and if the feeding of the 5,000, excuse me, if if the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6 really happened, the disciples aren't going to say to him, where are we going to find bread? Okay, they're just going to go up to Jesus and say, come on, Jesus, let's see you do the bread trick again. Okay, work wonders last time. Do your stuff once more. Except, how long, how many times does it take you, or me, how, long, how many times does it take us to learn a lesson? Do you always learn the lesson first time? I mean, you know, I was once told that in a company, it takes at least seven times to communicate the same message to the workforce before it really begins to sink in. Okay, now, sure, you know, we're not a company, Okay, but have you ever found yourself saying, boy, I cannot believe I've just gone and done that again. I really should have learnt my lesson by now. Because that's one reason. Another one is that Jesus never presents himself as a vending machine, does he? Now, Jesus never presents himself as a, you know, put your money in, you know, choose your snack, give the machine a bit of a shake, and out pops the miracle. And out pops bread for thousands. Now, Switzerland must be the only country in the world where vending machines offer you cheese. It's extraordinary, isn't it? What other nation in... I mean, maybe your nation does. They don't in England. Okay, what nation in the world offers cheese in vending machines? But even here, the vending machines don't offer you bread to go with the fondue mix, do they? And to imagine that the disciples would slap Jesus on the back and do the equivalent of stick coins in the slot, give him a bit of shake, choose the bread for 4,000 option, that, to think that they would do that is to, is to fail to grapple with the character of the man who they are standing alongside. So their question hangs in the air, doesn't it? How can one feed all of these people in this desolate place? Meaning, no one can do that. No one can feed all these people in this desolate place. Except Jesus asks, how many loaves do they have? The answer comes back seven. He sits them all down and verse six, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. So, the Gentile Syrophoenician woman, she asked Jesus for crumbs from under the table. And here is Jesus standing before a crowd of Gentiles. And he doesn't give them crumbs under the table. He sets the table for them, and he doesn't give them crumbs. He gives them a feast. And the disciples get an answer to their question, don't they? Who can feed all these people with bread in this desolate place? And the answer is, Jesus can. In fact, what's interesting is when they ask who can feed all of these people? The word for feed is the same word that in verse 8 is translated there, satisfy. They want to know, who can satisfy all of these people? 
Who can feed them? Who can fill them so they don't hunger again? Who can send them away full in a desolate place? Who can satisfy them? And the answer is, Jesus can. And from the earliest days of the church, the church fathers have recognized that Jesus feeding all of these Gentiles isn't just about him satisfying their physical hunger. It is pointing forwards to what we might call the Gentile mission for how Jesus and only Jesus can satisfy not just the Jewish nation, but every nation. Not just Jewish people, but every person, everyone, including you and me, who are far away. So the question is, what do you look to for that? I mean, even today, what, what, what are you looking to to satisfy you deep down on the inside? What can leave you feeling like you have been fed and you can stop searching? What can leave you feeling, oh man, now I feel complete. This is it. And what can do that for you, not just when life is good and you're getting everything that you want, but when life isn't good, when like them, you are in a desolate place and and you're not getting the stuff that you want. In fact, when all the good stuff of life is being stripped away, what can satisfy you, not just in the good times, but in the desolate times? Well, first off, Mark tells us what can't. Okay, second point then, two wrong ways. And Jesus leaves this Gentile region and he returns to a Jewish one. And verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Okay, so big contrast, isn't there, between the Syrophoenician woman and these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders. The Syrophoenician woman, she comes asking for mercy knowing that even crumbs from Jesus could satisfy her need. And there's a contrast as well between the Pharisees and the crowd, the thousands of Gentiles, because they go home satisfied by Jesus. The Pharisees, the religious people, they've come to argue. They've come to argue with him. But that's the problem with religious legalism, isn't it? You see, when you think that, if, if you think, and maybe this is you today, okay, when you think that to be right in God's sight, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to be good enough. You've got to satisfy him by your moral con- conduct or by your religious zeal and that you're praying enough and you're reading your Bible enough and you're, you're going to enough meetings and all you've got to be better than others. If that's how you think you've got to prove yourself to God or you've got to prove yourself to God like that, you're inevitably going to be argumentative because you're always going to have to prove that you're right and others are wrong. Your identity, your significance is tied up with being right. You've got to prove yourself right. So you're going to argue And to prove Jesus is not right, the Pharisees come and demand a sign. Now, they've seen exactly the same evidence or types of evidence as a Syrophoenician woman, but that's not enough for them. They want something more. They want a sign from heaven. 
something to prove, a sign in the heavens, something to prove unequivocally, beyond doubt, that Jesus really is someone special. Now, I once heard a story, and it's um, apocryphal, I don't think it's true, but I'll tell you anyway. Okay, I once heard a story of a couple who had been married for 40 years, and they still got on, okay, but the wife had a complaint against her husband, and obviously her husband was a farmer, and she said to him, we've been married for 40 years, and you never tell me that you love me. To which the husband replied, I told you I loved you on our wedding day, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. Okay, young guys, thinking of getting married, not a good example. Okay, maybe do better than that. Not the best approach. Okay, but imagine that the, imagine that the husband had told her he loved her, but that that didn't satisfy her. And she said, no, no, words aren't enough. You've got to prove to me that you love me. How could he do that? How could he prove to her that he loved her? He could buy her flowers, couldn't he? He could do the washing up. He could tidy up after himself. Um, he, could, he could put the bins out. Um, what, whatever does it for you. I mean, he could, he could make I love you the first thing he says in the morning and the last thing he says at night. But would that be enough? You know, none of those would be enough unless the wife wanted to believe they were true. If she has already decided he doesn't love me, in fact, all of, this, all of him doing this is just proof to me that he doesn't love me because he's having to do all this. Because if he really loved me, I would, I would feel this. Nothing he can do, if she doesn't want to believe it, or switch it around, I'm not making this a sexist thing, make, make, make it a husband. You know, if he, if he doesn't want to believe, nothing she or he does can prove their love for the other. For evidence to be enough, there has to be an openness to trust it, doesn't there? There has to be a willingness. And listen, the same is true for faith. And the person who asks for evidence for the existence of God or for the resurrection of Christ, they, and that may be you, you may be genuinely seeking the truth. You may be genuinely seeking for evidence to persuade you, because you, you know, you're open to that. But the person who demands cast iron proof, they've probably already made their minds up, haven't they? And probably no proof would be sufficient. You know, when I first became a Christian, I was about 17, I was trying to persuade one of my friends at school to join me and also to convert. But despite all of my best arguments, despite de deploying all the evidence for the resurrection of Christ and the truth of Christianity, he refused. And one day, and I remember it pretty well, we were in a, uh, the maths classroom, and I was getting frustrated, and I said to him, I ended up saying, listen, if I could prove to you that all of this was true, would you believe? And he said, no. <laughs> I mean, at least he's being honest, isn't he? He doesn't want to believe. And that is not as uncommon as you might think. Okay, the American philosopher Thomas Nagel, who's an atheist, wrote, and this is a well-known quote, I want atheism to be true. And am, made, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. 
It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He sees the same evidence as you if you're a Christian. He sees sees the same evidence as me. But he doesn't want to believe it. He's coming with his presuppositions. He's coming. I, I I don't want the world to be like that. But again, at least he's being honest. Now, why say all of that? Because maybe you are here, and maybe you're not yet a Christian, and you've got questions. Okay, that is great. Ask your questions. Seek answers to your questions. But maybe, you know, if you're being honest with yourself, maybe they are less questions, and maybe they're more demands for proof before you'll believe. And if that is you, in all of your asking, ask yourself a question as well. Am I really open to the evidence? Or have I, you know, like my school friend, like Thomas Nagel, like the Pharisees in this passage before them, or have I already prejudged it? Ask yourself, what level of proof will be enough And why? You want the Christian faith to be honest with you. Be honest with yourself. What level of proof will be enough for you? Why don't you want it to be true, maybe? And knowing what is going on, Mark tells us, verse 12, that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Jesus doesn't just feel compassion for a crowd of Gentiles. He feels compassion for a crowd of Gentiles, but he also feels a deep sorrow for deeply religious people who are refusing to truly believe. But if you look, it's not just just the Pharisees that he's groaning over, verses 12 and 13. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. In other words, the problem of a refusal to believe wasn't limited to the Pharisees, was it? No miracle is sufficient for the skeptic who is determined to cling to their skepticism. And if you're here and you're a bit skeptical, don't let that be you. Okay, don't let that be you. Okay, but what's interesting here is that Jesus makes clear that this unbelief can take two forms. And on the surface, they might look entirely different from one another. But what Jesus is saying is that both of these forms of unbelief are unbelief and they will stop you from ever knowing the deep satisfaction that you are looking for. Whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a Christian. Okay, look at verses 14 and 15. Okay, Jesus and the disciples, they get into a boat, they head for the other side of the lake and they had forgotten to bring bread. And he, Jesus, cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, when someone tells you to watch out, do you? Someone says, watch out, do you watch out? It all depends on the person who's telling you and the context, doesn't it? Okay, our, um, uh, our daughters, they have this penchant for going, you know, they have this unending desire to go to the edge of cliffs, 
And um, Sue and I are always getting nervous uh, the closer they get to cliff edges. And it feels like we're forever telling them, girls, please, watch out. What do they do? They routinely ignore it. Okay, because they know it's just, it's just mum and dad being anxious. Okay, think how different it would be if they were on a narrow mountain ridge, roped up, with an experienced mountain guide, and he says to them, watch out. They'll listen then, won't they? And here, when it comes to life, Jesus is that experienced mountain guide. And so when he says to you and to me, watch out, we should. Okay, but look what he says to watch out for, verse 15 again. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The Pharisees and Herod. They are about as far apart as you can imagine, aren't they? The Pharisees, they are doing everything they possibly can to obey God's law and to make themselves right with him. Herod is happy to break God's law if it makes him feel good and look good. And he will compromise principle and people for power and getting what he wants. One is the conservative religious person. We need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to morality. We need to get back to God's law. The other is a secular progressive pragmatist. If it feels good and if it works, do it. And both, Jesus says, are like leaven. Because like yeast in a batch of dough, their influence in your life has the power to profoundly shape your life. But not in good ways. Because both tell you, well, what's their similarity? Both tell you, you're the answer to your problems. You are the one who can satisfy yourself. The solution lies within you. You want that sense of significance? You want that sense that you matter? You want that sense that God approves of you, that you're forgiven? Well, work hard, obey God's law, live a highly moral life, go to all the prayer meetings, read your Bible. And we should go to prayer meetings and read, read your Bible. Okay, don't think I'm not saying that. But you've got to pray more. You've got to read your Bible more. You've got to, be, you've got to do more. Do that. Satisfy him. And he will satisfy you. That's the Pharisees. Or you want to be satisfied? You want a life that's full? Hey, pursue pleasure. Live life. You be you. Do what feels right and good for you. It's a way of Herod. And Jesus is saying both will fail you. Look for inner satisfaction, look for meaning, look for purpose, look for forgiveness, look for significance. Look to be filled with the bread of life within yourself, whether that's through conservative religious values or progressive secularism, and you will never find it. Ultimately, both will send you away empty. Legalistic religion will leave you burdened and unsure that you have done enough, or it will leave you proud and self-satisfied, and with it, argumentative. Because deep, and the reason 
we argue is because deep down we still feel that urge to prove ourselves because we haven't been satisfied. Because you've still got to prove that you're right. While secularism and the pursuit of pleasure or more stuff, it might satisfy us for a time, but then it wears off. And you have to go looking for the next high. As that great British philosopher Mick Jagger sang, I can't get no satisfaction. Not with a girl, not with a car, not with anything. Or as Jenny Lynn sings in The Greatest Showman, and I won't sing it. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. In her case, without someone else's husband. So, listen, you can try and obey all the rules like the Pharisees. Or like Herod, you can try and break all of the rules. But neither will deliver deep inner satisfaction. So what can? Last point then. The way of faith. Okay, the disciples hear Jesus' warning. And what do they do? They go straight back to arguing about bread and whose fault it was that they don't have enough of it. And verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And then if you look at the text, he just peppers them. He machine gun fires questions at them. Do you not perceive? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but not see and ears but not hear? Don't you remember? Until at verse 21, he ends with, do you not yet understand? Understand what? Understand that life is not ultimately about bread and whether you've got enough of it. It's not ultimately about having all of your physical needs met. It's about him and that he is the one and the only one who can do what the rule keeping of the Pharisees and the rule breaking of Herod can never do. And that is satisfy you. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is reminding Israel of how God provided them with manna in the wilderness. Verse 3. He, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Moses is saying what deep down every one of us already knows, I hope you know, that you can have all of your physical needs met and still be hungry deep down for something more fulfilling, to hunger for that which really satisfies. And Jesus comes and he comments on this passage from Deuteronomy and he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. I'm the one who can feed you. I'm the one who can satisfy you. But you've got to come to me. You've got to trust me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's ironic, isn't it? Here are some Pharisees demanding signs, demanding proof, because they think life is all about proving yourself. And elsewhere, Jerusalem or somewhere else, there's Herod pursuing the wisdom of the world, thinking that image and self-fulfillment will satisfy him. But they both miss the boat. Because as Paul says, it's in Christ and in him crucified that we find both the power and the wisdom of God. Because it's in Christ's death and resurrection that our deepest needs are met. Think about it. It's at the cross, it's there that you discover that you matter so much. You are so loved by God that the Son of God would die for you. It tells you you're not just loved, you matter. It's there that you find the answer to that nagging sense that you're not good enough. Because you're not good enough. But Christ bore the penalty for our not being good enough. And because of him, we stand forgiven and loved and adopted by our Heavenly Father. And it is there that you can find purpose and meaning for life. Because if God loves you like that, what else is there to do in life but to glorify him and enjoy him forever? You see, Jesus can do, he can do for you and for me what religion and secularism can never do, and that is satisfy you. Let's pray.